You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, today we're talking about family. That's what we mean when we say kindred. Kindred project is, a, is about discovering family. And I just want to begin by inviting you to look around a little bit. Let your head swivel. I know Presbyterians don't think their necks have much range of motion when they're in church. But if you just look around at the faces that are around, because this is your family. This, I know it's scary, but these are your people. And if you're lucky, you're looking around and you're seeing a little bit of color, aren't you? More and more, we're seeing faces of different colors come from different places and speak different languages and have different cultures and eat different food. And it's a wonderful thing that... The family of God is a multi-ethnic family. We're celebrating that uh, this spring together. Today, what I thought I would do is just tell you a little bit about how the Kindred Project came to be, tell you how you can participate, and then I want to tell you how it's absolutely essential that Jesus is at the center of this, how it would mean nothing without Jesus. All right, so that's the plan. Um, First of all, let me tell you how this thing we call Kindred Project got its start. It started this summer, actually. I was on sabbatical, as many of you know. Thank you for that. I was up in Vancouver, B.C. for a little while, taking classes at Regent College. And that first week of July, uh, July 4th was a Monday, uh, was a very devastating week uh, for me personally, and it felt like it was for the country. You may remember, if you think back, we had a number of officer-involved shootings of African-Americans that week. And, you know, it's not that that is new necessarily in our country, but now with the video technology we have, we are seeing it. And we were seeing it all in the same week, and it was just devastating. And so I'm coming back from class, and I'm watching the news, and I'm thinking, oh, can't get any worse. Oh, it can't get any worse. And to be honest, it was that week where I began to feel my hope for our nation uh, under threat. On Tuesday, it was Alton Sterling. On Wednesday, it was Philando Castile. On Thursday, it was Adam Smith, Vincent Ramos, two people. And then on Friday, uh, the police officers lying dead in our streets in Dallas, Lauren Ahrens, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, Brent Thompson, and Patrick Zamoripa. That was Friday. And the next day, I was coming back to Seattle. And I was crushed, didn't know what to do, didn't know what I could do. Now, it happened to be that we would come back on sabbatical occasionally to kind of between trips to basically check on the kids, make sure the house hadn't burned down, do our laundry, repack, and go out. And we had this one day uh, to be here in Seattle. It was a Sunday. And I had a problem because I thought, where does a pastor on sabbatical go to church, right? I couldn't come to be with you guys because I was on sabbatical. I didn't want to confuse you uh, (laughs) and see how tanned I looked. Um, uh, So if I can't be with you all, who would I want to be with? Well, on a week like that, I decided I wanted to worship with our African-American brothers and sisters. And the first church that came to my mind was Mount Zion Baptist Church. I know you know this church. I'd known it since I'd been here because it's always in the news, oftentimes on the front page of the Seattle Times, but I'd never been there. And I'm embarrassed to say I'd never been there. Mount Zion Baptist Church is the leading African-American church, I think, in our city. uh, It's older than we are, 
It's a church that was pastored for 40 years by Reverend Dr. Samuel McKinney, who was a Morehouse uh, classmate of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And this church has been on the forefront of the civil rights movement in our country, certainly in our city. And so on a, on a Sunday, when we were in the pits, because we knew for sure that we were not in a post-racial society, as we had told ourselves maybe we had, had become, I wanted to be at Mount Zion. And I'll tell you, it was very awkward for me. And not because the church wasn't hospitable. Actually, it was the, probably the warmest experience I've ever had in a church that, that, uh, that I was not uh, associated with. <laughs> they do this thing where they make you stand up, you know, and introduce yourself as a first-time visitor, which I don't like. Um, <laughs> and they engage, you know, so who are you? And tell us your story. And I said, oh, this is George, and this is Ann Hinman, and, you know, we worship at uh, University of Presbyterian Church. Thank you for having us here. <laughs> and then uh, we sat down and... Um, and uh, it was a very emotional service, as you, as you might imagine. I mean, there were tears. There was a lot of anger in the room and pain. And, um, and the preacher got up to preach. The senior pastor is Reverend Aaron Williams, turns out, a very fine preacher. He had chosen that day to preach on the story Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. And he said it was a story of somebody crossing lines of race. It was a story of somebody who was lying wounded in the streets and hurting. And it was a story of clergy who walked the other way. Because they did, they walked around. His, his fellow compatriots and religious leaders walked around. But you know the story. The guy who stopped was a foreigner. He was an outsider. He was a half-breed ethnically. He was a Samaritan. But he was the one who cared for him, bound up the wounds. And then Pastor Aaron looked out at us, and I thought he looked directly at me. <laughs> and he said, and he said, see, Jesus is not looking for people of the cloth. He's looking for people of the towel, people who know how to serve. And then he reminded us of, of what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had taught that uh, if day after day, month after month, year after year, on the very same road, robbers keep jumping out and wounding people on the road, yes, of course, we have to be the people who bind up those wounds. But we've got to fix the road. We've got to fix the road. We've got to fix the road. It was one of those moments, like many of you have told me about from time to time, uh, where you say, I felt like God was speaking directly to me today. I mean, I tell you, I could feel the heat coming up the back of my neck. It was like I was the only one in the room. And God was saying, George, we have got to fix the road. After the service was over, you know, I went and got in line and introduced myself to Pastor Aaron. And I actually, that, that was when I confessed. I hadn't said so earlier that I'm a pastor. <laughs> so I, I am a pastor of University Presbyterian Church. And I said, I, but I want to be a man of the towel. And I want you to know that your brothers and sisters in Christ at UPC are heartbroken with you today. And we want to know if there's anything we can do in Seattle. And Aaron Williams very kindly 
still holding my hand, said, George, let's have lunch tomorrow. And I said, I can't have lunch tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to California. But I was amazed that he would want to take a lunch appointment with me. I can't imagine how busy. So I said, when I come back, can we have lunch? And when I went down to California, so what I do is I go down for four weeks every year to California to prepare my sermons. And, um, but I, so for four weeks, I couldn't stop thinking about that sermon and about the pain in our culture right now around our divisions. I could not stop thinking about it. And when it got to be Lent, I thought Lent is, some, it, Lent is our moment here at UPC. We have got to do something about the road. I don't know what we can do, but we got to do something. So when I got back, I took the lunch with Aaron, and we ate together, and then we had another lunch, and then we had another lunch. I also reached out to another great pastor in the city, Dr. Alex Sway, who is a pastor of one of the most dynamic churches in the city, Evangelical Chinese Church. It's a church of three different languages, six congregations, two sites. It's, it's, it's a really important city, a church in our city particularly among Chinese. And I said, Alex, we have to do something about this. And we had coffee, and then another, and then another. And it, and it occurred to me, as I'm getting to know these brothers in Christ, that what this city needs is not something that it doesn't already have. And what we need isn't to become something that we aren't already. See, what we are is the family of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus has already broken down the dividing walls that separate us. It's already been done. We are the family of God. We don't have to become anything new. And I think what our city most needs right now is to see it. To see that it is possible to cross boundaries of ethnicity. It is possible to find unity in diversity. It is possible not to allow our differences to become barriers, but to actually celebrate our differences and find the richness that God has given us there. So, so let's call it let's call it family. Let's call it kindred. And that's what we're doing. That, that's how this came to be. So let me move on to the second question and just take a couple minutes here to, to, to invite you to participate. It's one thing to watch three pastors meet. It's much more meaningful to get involved yourself. And I want you involved. So how can you participate in the kindred project over this next 40 days? Well, three things. Uh, first of all, we're going to have kindred small groups. You're already a small group. The small group is where the family gets equipped. Remember we talked about your small group is your school of love, Bernard of Clairvaux's term. And that's where you covenant together to adopt practices that begin to, 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 to shape your life as a life of a person in love. And so each week we're going to give you what we call a personal challenge. I'm going to give you one today. It's going to be in the study guide in your small group. You're going to talk about a personal challenge, and you're going to adopt that practice for the week, and you're going to help each other, hold each other accountable. Okay, that's what the small group's going to do, equip the family. Then we're going to have worship celebrations here where we worship the head of the family. We come and say thank you to Jesus, our elder brother, for bringing in, us into this family. And we have a whole calendar of stuff, and it's a little bit dynamic. Things are changing. Let me just show you a screen of some things that are happening. Um, by the way, the first thing to notice is that tomorrow night we begin. Tomorrow night, come back here with me, and uh, we're going to host the University of Washington Gospel Choir as they do their spring concert together. Awesome. Turns out that the, the director of the choir at UW is Phyllis Birdwell, 
Phyllis Birdwell also providentially happens to be the director of music at Mount Zion Baptist Church. We're like, whoa, this is cool. So our gospel choir is going to lead us in serving that night. We're going to have a reception for their guests and serve them, people of the town. Okay, so you get a chance to do that tomorrow night. 7.30 is the time. The third way you can participate beyond these worship celebrations are kindred gatherings. Now, this will be hard. I want to tell you, building relationships this way is not going to be easy. It's going to be a two-step forward, one-step back, three-step back kind of a thing. Um, it's going to take some time. Some of us are going to get a chance to, to uh, gather kindred gatherings after Easter. What is a kindred gathering? It's a family gathering. Uh, between your small group and uh, a few people from another ethnicity uh, or another church, okay? You're just going to get together and break bread and share stories together of who Jesus is. That's how you can participate. Now, in the remainder of my time, I want to answer the question, how is Jesus absolutely indispensable? Even to take our first step. And to do that, what I want to do is I want to begin, I want to introduce you to the book of Jonah. And you're like, Jonah? I thought we were talking about Jesus. What happened there? I missed it. So why would you look at the book of Jonah if you're trying to learn about how it is that the followers of Jesus can change the conversation around race today? Well, uh, two things. If you read the book of Jonah well, you begin to discover that Jonah is a book that God has a prophetic book. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. Many scholars think that it was written late after the exile. Uh, but the reason it's in, it, it, Israel has it in their canon among the prophetic books. It's a, it's a prophetic book. And, and the purpose of the prophetic book is two things. God is calling Israel through this book to live a better life and to live in a bigger world. First of all, I say live a better life because Jonah's all about turning around. The key word is turn. Jonah has to turn, but you know, God says go east and he goes west. By the way, Tarshish, where he gets on the boat to go to Tarshish, you know where it is? You think it's in modern Spain, on the west coast, on the Atlantic side. He's getting as far away from God, and God's going to gently, well, we're going to just turn you around, Jonah. Okay? Jonah turns, Nineveh turns, even God turns in this book. We'll see that later. But it's about turning back, or repenting is the biblical language, into a better life. That's a theme for Jonah and for Jesus, and it's something we need in this conversation. And the other thing is bigger life. Bigger life. Jonah's all about, a bigger world, Jonah's all about ethnicity. I'm going to come back to that in a second, so I won't take any more time on that. Let's pull out the book of Jonah and open to Page 752. Jonah is not a book you can find um, on your own. It's only two pages, so you've got to be a Bible master to find it. So I, I give you the page number, 752, but it's Jonah chapter 1. We're going to read the first three verses today. And if you're able, would you please stand? I'd love to invite you to read with me. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Jonah 1, 1 through 3. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah sent out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 
grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. There are two lessons here for us today. Two lessons. One has to do with motivation, and the other has to do with capacity. Motivation and capacity. God says, go. And I think you and I need Jesus to motivate us to go. Actually, the Hebrew here uh, is a little richer than the English because there are two imperatives there where in our translation it just says uh, go at once. In Hebrew it says arise and go. One translator says up and go. You get this picture of him lying down, lounging around. He's got an Arnold Palmer in his hand or a Tiger Woods is what I learned when you mix a Coke and a, and a uh, iced tea together. There he's hanging out. Having a drink, a, a snooze under the the the, the, the sun, and, and gets up. It's a call to action. Get up. I want you to go. It's not enough to know all about me. It's not enough to know all the right theological answers. It's not enough to know that people matter to me. At some point, you gotta up and go. Right? And it takes something pretty powerful to get us to go around our ethnic differences. Now, he doesn't want to go, uh, and, and so the question is why? Well, it's because of the ethnic differences. It's because he, he, you know, he's an Israelite, and in Nineveh, they don't have Israelites. They have Assyrians, and there's a history between these two groups, and it's been a really, really rough history. In the past generation, the Assyrians have slain 10,000 Israelites, and Israel was paying tribute to them. They were overlords, the Assyrians. And in the next generation, by the way, the Assyrians are going to come back, finish the job, and take uh, Israel clean off its land into exile. And so, you know, the reader tends to think, okay, I know why he doesn't want to go, because he's afraid. He's afraid of the Assyrians. But we find out Jonah's not going. He's not not going because he's afraid of the Assyrians. Jonah is not going because he's afraid of God. You see that in chapter 2 of verse 4. Flip over if you don't believe me. Jonah actually tells us. This is a, the dramatic tension builds through the book. We don't really know why he doesn't go. We have our assumptions. We're wrong. We find out only at the end. In chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 2, um, you know, this is spoiler alert. I'm ruining a story for you. You know, he goes a second time, then another repents. Jonah is furious. This was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord this way. He said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? And here, here's, here's his motive. That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew this would happen. That if I went, you would start loving the Assyrians. And while I was there, if I saw you loving the Assyrians, I knew that I would have to love the Assyrians. See? So I wasn't going to, I wasn't not going to. So that's why he's not really going away from Assyria. He's actually going away from the presence of the Lord. Do you notice that's twice it's repeated there in our text? He's afraid of God. Now, he knows that this isn't the first time God has said go to anybody. Actually, Israel's whole story is a story of a, a family that's meant to go. Abraham had heard God say, Abraham, go from your country to the land that I will show you, for I will take your family and make your families the cause of blessing for all the families of the earth. So notice, when you go, the reason you go is because you're going into a, a blessed family. Same thing, Jesus tells a story at the end of his gospel, Matthew. Matthew reminds us, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He looks at his disciples. They can't believe their eyes. And he says, you know what? Go. 
Go, make disciples of all the nations. By the way, the Greek word there is ethnoi, from which we get our word ethnic. He's not talking about geopolitical entities. He's saying, go find the richness of this creation and the variety of ethnicities that are out there. And there, be and make disciples. You see, it's a family story as well. This is a story of Israel. This is our story. It's a story of the church. Those who are grafted into Israel continue in the same way. Jonah knows this. And so I'm, I, you know, I like to think, here's, here's what, so here's what's hard for me, is I like to think that I'm a person who's well-educated and enlightened, liberal-minded, you know, American, and that I understand all people are equal, and that when somebody gets hurt in our culture because of ethnic divisions, that that's bad, and it's not, and we want justice, and I know all that, but, and I have a very high tolerance for reading the newspaper and kind of ignoring any implications of, uh, for me. At some point this summer, there was kind of a critical mass that built up, and I realized it's not enough to know that anymore. I actually have to do something about it. I've got to go. See, so it, it, that's, what, that's what Jesus will do for you. He'll say, at some point, you've got to up and go. You've got to up and go. You've got to get involved. So what does that actually mean? Well, for me, it didn't mean much. I was just going to a different church on Sunday. That's, that's easy. I invite, I give you permission to do the same, right? Go. Don't come here. Go. Go to another church. So this is your personal challenge this week, because I want you to go somewhere uh, into difference, beyond your territory and your comfort zone, into somebody else's territory. So maybe it's going to another church. Maybe it's going to a, an ethnic grocery store. Maybe it's to a restaurant with a cuisine from a part of the world you don't normally eat. Maybe it's just if you don't want to, if you're so individualistic like me, you don't want to go anywhere. Just just stream a different kind of movie this week, okay? <laughs> Something with subtitles, okay? And, and what I want you to do is as you go is I want you to say, everybody you see that doesn't look like you, say, my brother, my sister. You can say it out loud or you can say it to yourself, but I want you to notice this is your family. Okay, that's your, that's your personal challenge this week because you have a new motivation now that Jesus says, this is your family. What wouldn't you do for your family? They see, didn't that shape your motivation? But that's what Jesus has done. He said, these, these are your brothers and your sisters here. So get, get up and, and get involved. The second lesson here for us is not so much about motivation, but about capacity. See, we need Jesus to get us involved. We also need Jesus to change history. We don't have the capacity to do that. This issue is bigger than us by far. And yet, even though Jonah's issue was bigger than Jonah by far, he had a surprising capacity, didn't he? Why? Because it wasn't about Jonah. Because it was about God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And he said, no. And then in chapter 3, again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. It's like God saying, and I relate to Jonah way too much. Um, I love Jonah because he's me. And then God calls me and I go, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> or I go, yes, but I really don't. You know, I just try to fake God out and I go the other direction. Well, God goes, I know, George, I know, but I meant it. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. He grabs you in the distant country, right? Like the younger brother. He says, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But I meant it. You're my beloved child. You're part of this family. You're on its mission. So it's really God's capacity that's at play here. I like what Jacques Ellul says. Um, Jacques Ellul notices that in the Hebrew here, it doesn't really say the word of the Lord came. It actually says the word of the Lord is 
and this is the expression that we find in the prophets, the word of the Lord is, it came to be, it came into existence as though it were a living thing right there in front of Jonah's eyes. Not something that he heard, it was a new reality that broke forth, broke forth around his life. That's what happens, the word of the Lord, boom, it is, it's right there in front of you. And it changes everything about you and everything about the circumstances you're in. These are Jocko Lowell's words. He says, this shows that the word is not just words. It's a power which exists and manifests itself. It transforms what it touches. It cannot be anything but creative and salvific. It never fails to take effect. When the word intervenes in a situation, it changes the situation. When it comes on a man, it changes the man, even if he refuses to listen. This is our capacity. I mean, this is an amazing thing. Jonah's a nobody. We know almost nothing about Jonah. Until the word of the Lord comes. And then his history is changed. And the history of the world is changed through Jonah. Now, I, I say I'm like Jonah because I am a person who knows. My challenges are much greater than my capacity every day. I don't know what you're facing, but I, I'm willing to bet. You, whatever it is, you're, it's bigger than you. And you can't do it by yourself. The good news is when the word of the Lord comes to you, you've got a new possibility breaking out around you. It's the power of Jesus, the living word, who goes with you. You know, we wonder, what are we supposed to do about the whale story? I mean, is that supposed to actually have happened? Well, you know, the Israelites know that people don't live inside of whales. The whole point of that story is that God does the impossible. That's why Jesus refers to this as the sign of Jonah, because in the first century, they knew people don't come back from the dead either. And the point of the resurrection is that God always does not the possible, but the impossible. And with that kind of capacity, your puny little resources make a difference. This is the beauty of God. I want you to change the world. You're called. You're called. You're called. How do I know I'm called? Well, for Jonah, it was like a uncomfortable thing. When you read the news, do you ever feel uncomfortable? That's the call of God. You can't get away from it, can you? You can't set it aside. It's kind of burning inside of you. You feel like you got ought to do something. You don't know what to do, but you got to feel like you ought to do something. That's the call. That's the word of the Lord coming to you. So all you have to do is go. And God's capacity is going to turn your small gesture into something that matters in ways that you can't imagine. I say, who am I? I'm a middle-class white guy, an American male. All I know about race is that I know nothing about it. But I know this, I've been called. And you've been called. And you're no less than Jonah. So we have a new motivation in Jesus Christ. Go, go to our families, go to our family. We have a new capacity. Let's expect the impossible because he's called us. At the end of last year, uh, one of the editors of the New York Times was walking on the sidewalk in New York City and someone shouted at him, go back, go back to your country. And he's a Chinese man and this is his country. He's an American. He was so fed up with this kind of thing, he created a hashtag, this is 2016. And it went viral. Because those of you who are Asian Americans know that you constantly get asked a question, where are you from? And you say, I'm from Louisiana. <laughs> I'm from Oregon. I'm from Vermont. And they go, no, I mean, where are you from from? And, you know, the subtext there is really clear. 
you don't belong. This is not your place. And I want to tell you, it's very hurtful. And yet, the outcry, this is 2016, I go, well, yeah, you know what? These racial barriers have existed throughout human history, and they will continue. It'll be 3016 before our culture figures out what to do about it. Our culture doesn't know. It's not time that heals this kind of a wound. We need something that's more systemic. We need Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you, our culture in this moment does not know what to do with race. The day that I started writing this message, I read the Seattle Times, and eight stories, including two of the three front page stories, were about race and our divisions. Eight of them. Now, we don't have that many stories in the Seattle Times anymore, right? <laughs> eight of them. The people around you don't know what they know. It's a problem. They know it hurts. They don't know what to do about it. The, the thing is, you do. You know Jesus is the answer. When will the followers of Jesus Christ show the reality of the family of God. This is our moment. I think this is our moment. This is a Kairos moment in our culture. And I think it's an incredible opportunity for us. That's what the Kindred Project is about. Brothers and sisters in Christ gathering around Jesus to show a new way. I eventually uh, had the privilege of introducing Pastor Alex to Pastor Aaron. Uh, we met for uh, lunch in a restaurant, and when we um, slipped into the booth, Pastor Alex was visibly anxious, and um, he slid in next to Pastor Aaron. Pastor Alex is a Chinese pastor. He looked at Pastor Aaron, and he said, I've lived here in Seattle for many years, and I have not ever had a single African-American friend. He was very honest. By the end of that lunch, Pastor Aaron got up and grabbed Pastor Alex's hand, and he said, Brother, you have one now. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, <laughs> you have opened the household of heaven to invite all peoples, your creatures, your beloved creatures, into the sacred family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for this gift. We don't have to become what we're not. We don't have a program to do anything new. All you ask of us is to get up and receive the gift already given. We do pray that your spirit will empower us for this. We don't know where this will lead. We know it will be hard, but we are so eager to go. Send us with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.